Cybercrime has come a long way over the past several decades. Used to be in the early days of computers and the internet, cybercrime, viruses, Trojans, and so on were typically the product of teenage misfits, pranksters, malicious misfits of various sorts, troublemakers of different kinds. Today, this is not at all the case. Today, cybercrime, the vast majority of it is organized crime. Large, well-financed, often uh, well-organized, extremely skillful, uh, malicious actors who are not simply doing it for fun. There are still some pranksters, there are still some uh, little petty feuds and so on, but on the whole, the cybercrime today is largely the province of professionals. The, these professionals uh, have various goals, various, uh, very, various plans. Some of them are nation-state actors. We, the United States, we do a fair, we do a fair bit of our own cybercrime, or at least that which our adversaries would uh, doubtless call cybercrime. Edward Snowden revealed uh, just what the NSA is capable of doing. We do it, hopefully, to people who deserve it, Iran and so on. But uh, one form of uh, more or less malicious cyber activity, of course, the, the, our adversaries, the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans, do it to us and so on. So that's the politically motivated uh, cybercrime. There is the, uh, much of it, though, maybe most of it, most of the cybercrime today is commercial, for-profit cybercrime, organized crime in the full sense of the word, full sense of the words, large, well-financed at least, organized uh, groups of, organized groups who are out to make money. That's actually ransomware, which we'll be focusing on today, is the epitome of that. It, it, it is a uh, type of crime whose primary, more or less exclusive goal is to make lots of money, and it works really well. They make millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year extorting money from the targets of their ransoms. There are, of course, some groups that sit very nicely at an intersection of the commercial and the political. North Korea. North Korea, people shake their heads and wonder how a tiny little backward country that doesn't have any light at night, uh, that uh, they, they can barely afford electricity, that most of their populace is uneducated, yet they have some of the most formidable uh, cyber troublemakers in the world, and they do it apparently both to get some, some much-needed uh, hard currency by extorting money from Western corporations, and of course for political reasons. The more they can uh, aggravate the United States and the West, the happier the lunatics who run that place are. So the, there, are all kinds of, there are all kinds of cyber criminals with uh, varying motives. We're focusing today on ransomware, which is very much a for-profit, commercially motivated uh, type of cybercrime. And we're going to discuss um, some halachic angles that uh, ransomware cybercrime present. So a brief overview of what ransomware is. Cybercrime, the, the type we've been discussing in general, involves malicious actors who have no authorization to use a system. They somehow get access to the system. They find vulnerabilities in the software that control the system or the hardware of the system. They manage to get their own programs, their own software onto the machines. Their own software can do whatever they want once they get it running on the target's machine. They can do anything such as the relatively innocent uh, display uh, silly or obnoxious messages, which was common, again, a couple of decades ago. 
They can destroy data. They can destroy the information on the target computer. They can steal information on the target computer. They can make copies and send it back to the attackers. Or in the case of ransomware, they have a particularly nefarious uh, stratagem. They take the target's data, Word documents, emails, spreadsheets, databases, invoices, you name it, whatever, uh, whatever's on the target computer. They scramble it, they encrypt it. Basically, they make encrypted copies of it. Encryption is something which is usually very good. That's what we rely on all the time to securely communicate with our banks and our online stores and each other if we use encrypted communications. Encryption is, is often a good thing. It prevents uh, bad actors from spying on us. In this case, though, the, the bad actors encrypt all the target's data, including his backups, if they can get their, holds on, get their hands on the backup as well. Then they destroy the original copies. Now the target is simply left with a bunch of encrypted data which he has no access to. He doesn't have the encryption keys. The, the malicious actors, uh, they get the encryption keys. They don't give a copy to the target. So the target now has a computer, a hard drive, full of all his data, but in encrypted form. He can't read any of it. And if they do their job really well, the backups are also encrypted. Or Loelainu, if someone... Uh, for some inexplicable reason, hasn't made proper backups, then certainly he's in trouble. So now the bad actors turn to the target. They send him an email. They send a message saying, all your data belong to us. We have, we, we, are, we have now encrypted all your data. If you would like it back, you will have to pay us lots of money. Now, the smart uh, people doing this, of course, are not interested in being uh, sociopathic for so for sociopathic uh, so sociopathy's sake itself, they want to make money. So obviously they, they don't do this. They're, they're not out to, to target individuals much, at least not today. Today they typically go after rich companies, big rich companies. They call this big game hunting instead of targeting random individuals who don't have a whole lot of money. They target uh, companies that have big bank accounts that can afford to pay. Some of them, for political reasons, will avoid targeting companies that that are too sympathetic to the public, hospitals or uh, and, you know, human rights organizations, popular organizations they avoid. They try to do things that uh, won't get the public too angry at them. Many of them who operate out of Eastern Europe or Russia will not target Russian, co Russian companies. They don't want the Russian authorities, uh, their own governments who are more ruthless and uh, tougher sometimes breathing down their necks. So they have to look at the computer to see if, if it's a Russian computer. They look for Russian language stuff and they simply, uh, they simply skedaddle if they find uh, na nationality they don't want to mess with. But ideally today, they look for rich companies with poor security protocols. When they find those companies, they're golden. They scramble all their data. They make it impossible, difficult or impossible for the company to function until the company pays a large ransom. These can be these are often in the millions, or they even ask for tens of millions of dollars sometimes, and companies sometimes pay. As, uh, as, 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 as distasteful, as revolting it is for the companies to pay these ransoms, the alternative is sometimes uh, simply closing down their business. Modern business relies on data. If you don't have data, everything's stored in computers. If, they, if the damage is sweeping enough, you simply can't function. If your choice is basically corporate death or paying the ransom, Many companies simply say it's the lesser of two evils. One of the high-profile cases in recent memory was the Colonial Pipeline attack, where a major gas uh, infrastructure 
infrastructure pipeline operator what was uh, they were concerned that they would be wouldn't be able to get their backups on time so they paid several million dollars to uh to the to the dark side gang or their affiliates to get their data back so we're going to discuss today obviously this is reprehensible behavior it doesn't need uh it goes without saying that this is obviously uh completely unacceptable this is abominable immoral behavior according to halacha according to the Torah, according to any Surely, according to any system of, uh, of morality, we're going to consider two main halachic questions here. One is the permissibility of paying these ransoms by the corporations, by the targets, whoever they are. Are you allowed to pay ransoms? Second question we'll consider is whether, according to halacha, if the authorities can ever lay their hands, occasionally they do, occasionally they, uh, they do catch these miscreants, People have often noted that these miscreants, despite being sometimes truly brilliant, uh, truly brilliant hackers, often have terrible operational security, and they often, uh, they often are, maybe not often, but uh, <coughs> it does happen that they are apprehended by a government that's willing to extradite them to us or punish them themselves. So the question would be, from a halachic perspective, what is the civil law, halachic civil liability, for damage caused by cyber criminals, if they can't recover your data, and so on, what is the, what would the halachic liability be for ransomware attacks or other types of attacks that that harm the that harm the target's data? So first, we'll we'll consider the question of the legitimacy of paying ransoms. So the truth is, Western culture, Western legal culture, as well as general culture, is actually somewhat conflicted on paying ransoms. Paying ransoms in the United States is typically not illegal. The FBI will discourage it. Law enforcement strongly encourages and tries to support those who remain strong and brave and don't pay the ransoms. It is not generally illegal. Halacha has discussed the question of paying ransoms going back thousands of years. So the early halachic discussions, or pretty much all the halachic discussions, uh, are not about paying Cyber attackers paying ransomware operators, they are, of course, about paying kidnappers, paying different types of private or governmental kidnappers who uh, seize Jews and hold them for ransom. So the mission already discusses, are you allowed to pay ransoms to these kidnappers? So the answer is yes, but. Yes, with certain limits. The halacha does allow paying ransoms. The, the way the Mishnah formulates it is, you can't redeem captives for more than, more than they are worth, for more than the fair value. And the mission identifies this as, as uh, this restriction on not paying a, an unreasonably high amount is motivated by a concern for tikkun olam. Tikkun olam, that phrase that has, uh, that has been elevated into the central doctrine of Judaism by, by, the, by the left of Judaism today. Tikkun olam goes back to Psukim, it goes back to Mishnayas. There's a whole series of Mishnayas and Gittin that talk about various rabbinic institutions that they made because of tikkun olam. This is one of them, not to pay exorbitant ransoms for captives. This is because of tikkun olam. What is the tikkun olam in this case? What is the concern that the Chachamim had with paying, paying too high ransom? So there are two explanations in the Talmud. One of them is the obvious one, the one that we generally have, the, the concern we typically have today with not paying ransoms. We don't want to incentivize criminal behavior. We want crime not to pay. If kidnappers know that they can be paid very well, they can extort a tremendous amount of money for their captives, they will decide that crime pays, and they'll do more of it. 
The other explanation the Gemara gives is that we don't want to burden the community by Pidrin Shvuyim is a tremendous mitzvah. We don't want to burden the community by having the, these overly onerous obligations to pay tremendous amounts of money to redeem captives. As a matter of halacha, most posts can accept maybe both reasons, but certainly the former reason, that there is a concern against, incentiv- against incentivizing criminals. Thus, the Gemara says that if we only had the reason about the community, private persons could pay whatever ransoms they wanted. Lahalacha, we are stringent, and we generally say even private uh, entities are not allowed to pay exorbitant ransoms because, because we're, concerned for, we're concerned that we don't incentivize crime. Now, the Gemara does have an exception. The, 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 the postkim do have an exception. Postkim say that a person is allowed to pay an arbitrary ran- arbitrarily large ransom for himself. The, the Gemara was typically talking about cases where the captive wasn't paying anything. He was in jail. The, 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 extortion, the, the demands for ransoms were to other, other members of the Jewish community, which is often how things work today in the, the cartels in South America. Kidnapping, apparently, is a bustling industry. They capture businessmen, and they, they, demand, uh, they demand heavy ransoms from family. They threaten to start cutting off fingers and so on, unless, and they, they often do, unless they get paid. So, the, so the, the Talmud situation typically was that the ransoms were going to be paid by other members of the community. And that's where the Talmud says that you are not, that, that, that even if you want to, even if a private, generous individual wants to, wants to pay the ransom, he should not do so, because we, we, don't want to, we don't want to incentivize, we don't want to incentivize criminals. However, when we talk about the person himself paying a ransom, if, if he can tell his captives, let me go and I'll, wa- I'll wire you the money from my own account, I'll pay, just let me go. So, so, so the, the halacha is that, that we allow. We say, we say that a person, halacha lamaisa, a person is allowed to redeem himself for any price, even a person's wife, ishtoka gufo, and so on. Postkim say is a, I believe postkim say falls under this exception, but certainly to redeem yourself is something that the halacha accepts that you are, that you are allowed to pay. Now, trying to apply some of these rules to ransomware. So again, for 2,000 years, the Talmud, the medieval commentaries, the later commentaries, have, dis- have, you- have applied these halachas in dealing with captors of human beings, of Jews, in the bandits, hostile governments, the medieval period, you know, the German authorities who famously, the German emperor who famously captured, famously seized and jailed, Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg, the Maram of Rottenburg, and refused to redeem him unless a, unless a tremendous ransom was paid in the recent times, in the last century. The question was often discussed by Israeli authorities, Israeli halachic authorities, Ravadi Yosef, Rav Shol Yisraeli, many others, in the context of terrorists, in the context of hijackers and terrorists who, 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 would, who, would, who would have Israeli soldiers or Israeli citizens. Can we negotiate with them? Can we trade terrorists for... Can we pay non-financial ransoms? Can we, can we do prisoner exchanges? Can we pay money, which will then be used maybe to finance more terrorism? Can we do all these things? The Post can try to apply these halachas as well to the modern situations. But today, in the last decade or so, we have a new situation. Now we have ransomware. It's not, your, it's not people who are being held for ransom. It is data. Data is being held for ransom. So we have to ask ourselves, does the Talmudic concern with not paying exorbitant ransoms does that apply to data? So on the one hand, you could argue that 
the Tikkun Olam Chazal were concerned about was the Tikkun Olam against not, about not encouraging kidnapping. Kidnapping is a terrible thing. Encrypting data is not quite the same thing as kidnapping. It's not as bad. So maybe, uh, maybe the whole concern of Tikkun Olam doesn't apply. Maybe you can spend whatever you want. On the other hand, you can argue that the relative ease with which ransomware is uh, implementable, it can be done by, done by a few guys in an office somewhere halfway around the world with minimum risk, minimal risk of getting caught if they're careful. And it's such a scourge in society, it affects, uh, it, it's such an ongoing, the, the, the barrier to entry is relatively low. It is such a, uh, such a tremendous scourge in society, it can cause you know, tremendous amounts of misery, hassle, financial trouble, even death. There, there, are, there are cases where hospitals were crippled or shut down, and there are various studies that have tried to calculate uh, how many additional deaths resulted from a hospital being knocked out of commission for hours or days. So you can argue that uh, even, even, if, even if we don't view a ransomware attack as quite as uh, heinous as a kidnapping, but the overall effect to society is tremendous, and incentivizing such behavior is tremendous, and it has a tremendous potential for uh, harm to society. And you could argue that the same concern of Tikkun Olam of Chazal should apply. Now, in general, though, we can make one argument, based on what we said earlier, we can make the case that generally there would be no prohibition, because as we mentioned earlier, the post can say, it's not explicit in the Talmud, but the post can say, and we accept this as normative halacha, that the entire discussion about, uh, the entire discussion about Tikkun that maybe you can't pay, you don't want to incentivize crime, that's all for other people. If your life is not on the line, you shouldn't be paying money to save someone else. Even though he's also a Jew and his life is also on the line, you shouldn't pay money to save him. But the Tosfus tells us, and we pass him like this, that the, the Talmud never prohibits someone from doing whatever he needs to to save his own life. To save your own life, you're not restricted. Chazal couldn't bring themselves to tell somebody, you may not save your own life by paying money. It's too much to ask from somebody. So if we, despite the fact that you'll be incentivizing crime, we can't, we can't look somebody in the eye and tell them, give up your life and don't redeem yourself, that much Chazal were not willing to do. Arguably, in the case of ransomware, it is typically the targets themselves who are paying the ransom. Actually, it might often be their, their cyber insurance carriers, but uh, that's an additional complication. But if we're dealing with a company, let's say, paying the ransom itself, Arguably, that's like the case of Tosus. A person himself can always pay the ransom. Certainly, if, it's, uh, if it means uh, corporate uh, devastation, if the company is going to otherwise cease to exist, if they can't recover their data, one could argue that that falls under the dispensation of paying your own ransom. On the other hand, one might counter that, no, that the, the exception Tosus makes for paying your own ransom is when your life is at stake, when it's literally a question of life and death. Chazal couldn't bring themselves to tell somebody that you have to die rather than pay a ransom. It's not actually death. It's, uh, it's the company being uh, crippled or destroyed. No one's actually dying if they don't pay the ransom. Maybe that wouldn't apply. In any event, we can make arguments back and, back and forth as to how, how directly we can transfer the rules of, uh, of not paying ransoms from kidnapping to ransomware. The overall situation is quite similar. You're dealing with uh, the morally and economically deeply unsatisfying proposition of paying money to bad actors, incentivizing bad action in the future, rewarding crime. It's, uh, obviously, it sticks in our throat to do such a thing. On the other hand, sometimes the alternative is simply worse. So Chazal dealt with the same questions. Chazal had a variety of rules. 
Chazal's position is nuanced and is not black and white, and many of the arguments can certainly be applied to ransomware as well, and again, the, the, the matter is not entirely clear. There is, one additional, there is one additional consideration we should mention. As we began, even, even where the Mishnah's rule applies, even in the case where it's a, it's a textbook case of, uh, of not paying exorbitant ransoms, the operative word is exorbitant. The Mishnah never says you cannot pay a ransom. The Mishnah says you cannot pay yoser al demand. You cannot pay more than the value of the, of the captives. You're allowed to pay the value of the captives. So now we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? What is the, how do we define the value of a person's life? We're often told that the Torah, the Torah teaches us that a human life is uh, priceless, is beyond value. How do we value a human life? So first of all, the answer is, of course, that even if in a, a certain religious context we say that life is priceless, in the context of civil law, we very much do put prices on human life. If you injure somebody, you pay economic value. If you kill somebody, there are certain cases where you pay for wrongful death in halacha and you pay economic value. The economic value is calculated using much the same principles that it is today. We calculate things like expected earnings and so on, and we, uh, yes, the, the heroic firefighter's life is worth much, much less un, under these types of rules than the bond traders. The, the, I remember Kenneth Feinberg, the special master for the September 11th Compensation Fund, so he got a big pot of money, and his job was to, was to figure out uh, who should get how much money. So he wrote, he wrote after the fact, he was an expert on this kind of thing apparently, and he wrote after the fact, he just, the whole thing just, uh, he couldn't deal with it. He said he, henceforth he says he will no longer play God and decide how to value different lives. Uh, the law forces him to say that the firefighter's life is worth less than the, than the quant analyst at, at the hedge fund, he said. It, 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 he just can't deal with this, it's so, it feels so wrong to him. I never understood his position. I'm not sure if he felt the entire Western legal tradition of paying for wrongful death, paying economic value, he felt was morally bankrupt, or for some reason he felt terrorism should have different rules. I don't know what his position is, but regardless, the, the halacha Dr. has... Dr. Yes? Uh, I, I, I can explain that. Uh, I work as a lawyer. I earn a lawyer's salary. My wife teaches Torah to children and earns a salary of someone who teaches Torah to children, which one of us is really worth more? Right? It, it's it's the, the, the value to society is, certainly from a Torah perspective, is completely out of proportion to what to our respective salaries, uh, and that's what he had to deal with. It's, it's yes. straightforward. <laughs> right, so I, I understand the basic point that we can that value to society, value in God's eyes, place in the world to come. But by, by, by these types of metrics, I understand the, the point that this is not at all the same thing as economic value. The, the Gemara famously says that somebody once had, a, had, a, had an experience of the afterlife, and he reported, uh, people asked him, someone asked him, what's it like over there? So he said, El yonim lamata, b'taktonim lamala, that the, the order of things in the, in the kingdom of heaven is different, is going to, is different, will be different from the order of things down on earth. And that's absolutely true, that, that there, are, there, are, there are many different ways to measure worth and measure value. But the, the, the point I was trying to make was, though, that when it comes to compensation for death, when it comes to paying compensation, the, 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 the halacha and Western law largely agree 
that when it comes to awarding compensation, we typically award compensation based on economic value. Whether, again, whether terrorism, the 9-11 fund compensation, whether there's a case to be made, that should be treated differently from ordinary civil law uh, compensation for uh, restitution for causing wrongful death. That's a, that's a separate question, whether terrorism has special rules. But the point is, for the purposes of our discussion, we're discussing, uh, so, so when, when it comes to nezek, when it comes to wrongful death, manslaughter, and so on, the halacha is clear that you pay based on economic value. Calculation might be a little bit different. The Chazal did it as, as his worth on the slave market. We might do it as by some kind of actuarial calculation. How much do we expect him to make, to earn over the course of his, of his economically productive years? But when it comes to calculating tort compensation, the halach is clear, you pay based on economic value. So now, I guess this is you know, back to Shlomo's point. Now the question is, when Chazal said we don't redeem captives for more than they're worth, what measure of worth do we use? Do we use, again, worth in God's eyes? Do we use, do we use benefit to Klal Yisrael? Do we use economic worth? So there is some debate in the postkim about this. The, the dominant view of, how do we value, of, of what is considered more, more than worth, the dominant view is that it is based on, that it's based on economic value, that, the, that, that it's based on value of the... That, 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 that it's based on value in the slave market, and we pay, uh, which is a way of calculating economic value. What if there is no slave market? The Akronim already acknowledged that they lived in a world where slavery was not ubiquitous and not, uh, not everywhere. So they said, okay, so let's look at the value of a slaver who would transport him to a locale where there is slavery. They still lived in a time where that was, uh, you know, a, a reasonable calculation. Today, I suppose there is still slavery in some, uh, in some relatively uh, backward or uh, traditional parts of the world. But practically, if I asked you, you know, to value the, your office mate, how much would he be worth to a slaver who could, uh, who could you know, knock him out and carry him off to, you know, to, to some, 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 place, some backward place with the slavery? Realistically, that wouldn't yield much of a, uh, I think, meaningful economic number. Might be worth it, more than he's worth as an office mate. Okay. Um, others, others, uh, other posts can interpret this question of value a little bit differently. They, they focus on the fact that why does the Mishnah tell us that we shouldn't pay more than the value? So the, again, the dominant reason is we don't want to incentivize future seizures. So they say that, that, that the, the real concern is we don't want to make Jews a particularly attractive target. We, we don't want to pay more than the going rate. We don't want Jews to be particularly lucrative targets. So we shouldn't pay more for, for Jews than general society pays for captives in general. We have to look at what the going rate of ransoms is, and don't pay more for Jews because that will place a big target on the, on the backs of Jews. So once again, even if we were to assume, based on the other criteria we've been discussing, that, the, that, that, that there, is a problem with, with, with not, with, there is a problem with paying ransoms, the problem would be not paying an exorbitantly high amount. How much could you pay? So again, according to the first school of thought, you could pay the, the value of the data. According to the second school of thought, you don't want to make Jews a particularly attractive target. In terms of the value of the data, that's an extremely difficult uh, metric. People have tried, put, have tried to design metrics for valuing data. It depends on the kind of data. Uh, intellectual property might have one, you know, one metric for how much is this, uh, how much are these blueprints worth, how much are these... Uh, how much the, is this uh, drug process worth? Customer data. How much is your customer data worth? How much is your payroll data worth? A lot of this data might be worth 
nothing to other companies, but it's worth a great deal to you because it's uh, critical business information. Some of the data might not have any legal value, but it might be, uh, might be useful to your competitors who would pay a lot of money to know what your, what your, uh, you know, what, what, what your business internals look like. So it's not, it's not really so clear how, in term, if we tried to apply the mission of not paying exorbitant ransoms, it's not really so clear how we would do that. How would we decide what the value of the data is? Some types of data do have a fairly uh, standard, a fairly standard price, uh, often on criminal markets. So, for example, credit card data. When they when they break into Target and steal twenty five million customer records, including credit card data, these actually have very well defined prices. There are all kinds of markets on the dark web where credit card numbers are routinely sold in batches. It depends. How old are they? they? They tend to be worth less the older they are because they tend to get shut down. Do they come with uh, other personal information, birthdays, social security numbers? You can actually get something approaching a uh, market quote, a market price on certain kinds of data. So would the halacha of not paying exorbitant ransoms actually involve putting a price on your data and saying the data is worth X and uh, I can't pay you more than that? Or would you say, again, if it's critical to my company's functioning, even if there's no market price for the data, but if my, for my company it's priceless, is that the, that itself wouldn't, probably wouldn't be considered the value because the guy who's being held captive, also his life is very precious to him, but we still, we still restrict the amount you can pay by the, generally, the general amount the data's worth, the person's worth or the data's worth. According to the other approach, that, that we don't want to pay uh, unusually high ransoms, then the idea would be that we'd have to look at what ransomware payments typically are, and, 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 we, and we're going to say that we're not going to pay a, an unusually high number. Apple, Apple somebody once, I, th- I think recently there was an attack on a supplier or, an, or a manufacturing partner of Apple, and they stole some, some blueprints, some, some information about a new iPhone or something. They wanted, I think, $50 million to not release it or to not, Apple, I think, wasn't paying anything close to that, uh, if anything. But again, uh, these, these, these guys felt that for Apple, this is worth a tremendous amount, and let's ask for $50 million. Again, it might have just been a negotiating uh, tactic. Who knows what they really expected to get. Also, the, this latter school of thought that we don't pay exorbitant ransoms because that would mean that Jews would become a particular target. So that would be a particular concern if it was a, an identifiably Jewish business, Jewish, Jewish company, Jewish-run company, a shul or a, a big Jewish hospital maybe, an ordinary business that happens to have some Jewish executives, it's, not, it's not, certainly not to the criminals identifiably Jewish, this, this might not be a concern at all, because even if they pay an unusually high ransom, the criminals will not conclude that, oh, if there's a Jewish executive, they pay high ransoms, which seems to be the primary concern. Maybe it wouldn't be an issue. So the, this is kind of an initial, uh, I really, I could not find anything about this in print. I could not find any contemporary discussion of these issues. This is kind of an initial, uh, initial sketch of, of uh, briefly surveying the rules of, of the Mishnah, of the Talmud, of the post-Talmud halacha, of not paying unusually high exorbitant ransoms and considering various uh, arguments as, as to how they would apply to cyber attacks, to ransomware. We've mentioned some arguments that, that the, there, would be a, there would be less of a reason to restrict paying these ransoms because... We're not dealing with life and death matters. On the other hand, that cuts both ways, uh, to the extent that there's no, there's no Jew sitting in captivity by some, in some ruthless foe's dungeon. There's less of a need to, uh, to allow the paying of ransoms. So obviously, these arguments cut both ways, 
but, uh, but, but in, light of the, in light of the Talmudic and post-Talmudic discussion of the, the basic prohibition about not paying, not paying exorbitant ransoms, and we can see that many of these arguments would apply, might apply, potentially apply, to paying, paying ransoms as well. For the duration of our talk, I want to focus on the other question that we mentioned earlier, the question of what is the civil liability of cyber attackers if you can catch them and if they have caused damage that they can't undo, they, 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 they lost the keys to your, uh, to your data, now your data is hopelessly gone, or they simply wiped, uh, wiped your data. There was recently a case where Western Digital, a major manufacturer, a major manufacturer and seller of hard drives, they, they suffered uh, at least two, apparently, uh, separate breaches, which involved remote attackers simply wiping the hard drives. People lost years of, uh, of data, financial data, personal data, by these attackers uh, breaching systems of... These were individuals, not companies. Motive was very unclear, but they, they were simply wiping drives en masse across the Internet, wiping, wiping people's personal hard drives. Assuming you can catch some of these guys and you can show that you had some loss... You, you, you irretrievably lost data, what is the, what is the liability, what, what halachic principles would govern civil liability for such behavior? Now, obviously, there, there is the law of the land, and there, there are American laws that, that, that are international laws, various countries have their own laws that might govern, certainly if we're dealing with non-Jews, but I'm just using this as a, uh, as a hypothetical question, a hypo, to discuss what would the halacha be in a government run according to Torah, for Jewish attackers, Jewish defendants, Jewish victims, what, what, what would the civil liability be under Torah law for cyber attacks that, that damage the target systems? Now, to, to, to define the question a little bit more precisely, we're not dealing here, I'm not going to be discussing physical damage to the, to the target systems. That's a, that's a fairly narrow case. It happens, too. The, the U.S., apparently, we destroyed centrifuges in Iran by, uh, by a cyber attack, by reprogramming their centrifuges to operate at a spec, which caused them to, uh, to be destroyed. So there are some interesting but relatively limited cases where cyber attacks actually cause physical damage. There, there, there are these cases where they attack water plants and so on. So there are cases where cyber attacks actually damage the, the physical, physical items of the target, but I'm, I'm going to focus here on the much more common case where the damage is digital. Data is destroyed, data is erased, data is encrypted in ways that can't be unencrypted. So what is the, what is the liability for the destruction of data by cyber criminals? So there are... There are a number of interesting halakhic principles that potentially could limit or even eliminate the normal tort liability that we would expect a, a mazik, someone who damages a tortfeasor, to have. Now, the starting point is, he's a mazik, he destroyed property, he destroyed my data, my data's worth a lot of money. So, the starting point is, yeah, intuitively, it makes sense. He, he, he maliciously destroyed, destroyed data, he, he maliciously caused me Tremendous harm, tremendous financial harm, or non-financial harm. So why shouldn't he be liable? So there are a number of reasons, a number of potential arguments that could be raised against formal liability for, for such behavior. So the first one is one that we've been touching on, on and off throughout this talk. 
how do you value data? So I mentioned there's financial data, there's non-financial data. I might have pictures, family pictures for, for, th for the past 30 years that have just been wiped out by an attacker. I'm tremendously sad about it, but how does halacha value, value, intangible value like that? Value that has no market value. If I put up my family photos on eBay, they wouldn't be worth that much money. So how do you value such a thing? So this is uh, a very difficult question. Again, once again, in halacha, when we deal with Choshen Mishpah, we deal with civil liability, the classic metric for valuing an item is market value. How much would this item fetch on the market? New, used, maybe replacement cost in some cases. Generally not replacement cost. Generally the value is, generally the value is how much is it worth? How much was it worth before? How much is it worth after the damage? Either zero or damage, so it's reduced. Pay the difference. Contemporary authorities have discussed all kinds of questions where damage is done that may not have a measurable market value, but is clearly objectively damaged. So, for example, I have a pair of pants. I've been wearing them for two weeks. The pants may have cost me $40 to buy. They have very little resale market value. If I tried putting up a used pair of pants on eBay, I probably couldn't get anything close to... Uh, to new or even, even a substantial fraction of the used market. I mean, who really wants six months old pants? Who really wants to buy pants that have been tailored to my size, that have been worn by me for, for, uh, for, for weeks? I haven't actually tried uh, putting up pants on eBay to see what they go for. I'm, I'm just kind of assuming that they wouldn't go for that much, but who knows? But, but in general, uh, we, we, we as a culture, we, 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 we have so much stuff and we, we don't have, uh, again, with the internet, we've actually had a kind of revitalized used market in, in, for many products, but Cars, certainly. There's always been a robust used market for. Now you can resell all kinds of stuff. that They call it vintage, or uh, they call it you know, thrifting and repurposing today. Now maybe there's more of a resurgence in used. But you know, eyeglasses. You've had a pair of eyeglasses uh, cut and shaped and fitted for you. How much will you get secondhand for them on, on, on eBay? Probably not a whole lot. So see, you might have just paid $200 for glasses, or $15 if you buy them on Zenny, or whatever it is. But uh, how if someone damages your new glasses or your brand new suit, how much does he pay? Do you, really, do you really have to figure out resale value? Or is there some kind of notion that, for me, they're worth more because I would have to replace them. I spent this much money to buy them. I would have to replace them. So contemporary authorities are split on this. Some insist on, uh, on applying the classic rules of how much are they actually worth in the general market. Some say that we do take into account uh, personal cost. In general, they discuss all kinds of questions where I have something that is valuable only to me but has no general value. My passport. If someone goes and cuts up my passport, burns my passport, I can't sell my passport. I can sell it maybe to criminals, but I, I can't generally sell my passport. But it, it's a valuable document. It costs me money to replace. Things like that. What about uh, my manuscript of Kedusha Torah or the great American novel? I worked on it for 10 years. Someone goes and uh, burns it. Does he, I, I might not have gotten a lot of money for it. Publishers haven't recognized that I've just written the great American novel, or uh, my, my peers in the, in the rabbinic world may not accept that my Chidushe Torah are immortal and, uh, and priceless, but uh, they're worth a lot to me. I just devoted a lot of my life to them. So Post can actually debate whether there's any real claim for damages. An item that has no real market value, but has tremendous sentimental value, personal value, and so on, that's actually a very, uh, a very unsettled area of halacha, how much, uh, how much can you ask for? In general, my, my sense is, the consensus is, in, in the former case, the, in the case of something that has clear economic value, just no resale value like the pair of pants, 
if these are if these are forty dollar pair, if this is a forty dollar pair of pants, then then the then the then the person who damaged them should have to pay something for them. How much? Some say that you try to uh, calculate depreciation. If the pants have a year lifespan and they're half a year old, you should pay half. Some say that you uh, you try to calculate how much would a person agree, how much would a person pay to trade up from his half year old pants to brand new pants. He, he might not pay twenty dollars. He might pay ten dollars or eight dollars or something. So postkim have different attitudes, but many postkim do say that in such a case you should pay some kind of some kind of variation of the economic value of the of the item. The latter case, where the item has no real commercial value, it's uh, purely personal, sentimental, family photographs, my manuscript, and so on. That's much less clear. Whether I have the right to say, but I worked five hundred hours on it, and they're and they're irreplaceable, or whether the mazik can say tough. There's no way to put a, like we said before about the firemen and the bond traders, there's no way to put a, uh, a, a, uh, a halachic value on it. So that's actually the subject of some debate. So again, when it comes to cyber attacks that damage data, we have to ask ourselves, is there any way to put a real market value on the data? So some data, so for example, if you had, uh, if you had data on an invention that you made, or uh, you know, if you had the, the recipe for, uh, for a new drug or for a new, a, a new uh, culinary dish, that maybe you could put a price on. If, if I told you I have uh, a COVID vaccine I have, uh, that just passed all its trials, maybe that does have an economic value on it. If it. On the other hand, if it was just things like a company's internal business data, there's no real market for that. The company needs it, but there's no real market for that. That's really uh, a much harder thing to put a, to put a price on. So that, that, that's one issue that would arise when trying to hold somebody liable. How to put a price exactly. The, 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 the halacha doesn't have a clear attitude on how to put a price on something that doesn't have a relatively well-defined market value. There's another question, and this uh, may sound very strange, but this is a, uh, this is a genuine, although somewhat difficult to understand, Talmudic principle. The one, the one discussion that I've seen recently about liability for cyber attack is in the Sefer Kisos Lubes David by a Belgian rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov David Schmull. He was asked about someone who sends a virus via email. It wasn't clear from his entire tshuva whether this was deliberate or whether he simply forwarded an infected email. Email was a common way to get infected. Today, it's typically done by the web or by other things. But even today, email, email is still a common, uh, common vector. People send carefully crafted uh, Word documents. You've all heard the advice, never open an attachment in email, especially from someone you don't know. Email is still a fairly common vector for, for transmission of viruses and malware. So someone sent someone else a malware-laden email, the recipient opened it, and it damaged and wiped out his data, his programs, his data. So Rabbi Shmuel was asked whether, he has a, whether the victim has a claim for civil liability. Rabbi Shmuel is, uh, admits the, that he wasn't exactly sure about the nature of viruses and malware. He consulted experts, he says, who explained the process to him. And Rabbi Shmuel argues, spends, his, spends much of his tshuva arguing that we can make a, arguing about a, a possible reason for not holding the, the sender liable. And that is a very uh, interesting Gemara. The Gemara in Bavakama says that if someone places poison before someone else's animal and the animal eats it, he poisons his friend's animal, he is putter, not liable. Why? Because the animal shouldn't have eaten it. The animal made, it, made its choice. The animal decided to eat it. 
that's on the animal, that's not on me, I just put the poison in front of it, I wasn't the one who, act- it's, it's one thing if you actually inject the poison into the animal, you simply place the poison in front of it, the animal chose to aid it, that's the animal's choice, not mine, I am not liable. The Rishonim struggle to understand what that means. It's pretty clear from the Talmud, we're not talking about a case where the, the poison was, uh, we're not solely talking about a case where the poison was noticeable or the animal should have had the sense to realize it. We're talking even about a case where a normal animal in this scenario wouldn't recognize the poison, would eat it, and uh, nevertheless, the, the, the poisoner is still not liable. So the way many authorities explain, this is a kind of formal and technical rule that if, the, if, if a degree of autonomy is required by the victim, the victim brings the harm upon itself, even though it's something that the victim is not at fault in any way, we're not talking about recklessness or negligence on the part of the victim, the victim just did what normal people do, but nevertheless, if the harm does not occur without some kind of autonomous action by the victim, then, then that's a formal halakhic rule that the, the mazik, the person who caused the damage, is not liable. Some authorities discuss the question of uh, contaminated food. If a bakery or some kind of food establishment sells tainted food, are they liable for damage caused when the customers eat the food? Some have suggested no, because the, the customer eats the food. That He did it himself. Shouldn't have eaten it. So, does this, is this really true as a matter of halacha? So, not everyone agrees. Rabbi Shmuel himself goes back and forth, but ultimately cites the opinion of Rabbi Mendel Shafran, a leading authority in Israel today, a leading Haredi authority, who says a kind of very intuitive, very uh, appealing distinction. He says, the only time we apply this technical rule that if the victim brought the harm upon itself is uh, then, the, then, the, then the, the person who caused the harm is not liable, that's only if it requires some level of conscious and conscious, non-trivial, non-automatic action on the part of the victim. Anything that the victim does that's just normal, that he does without thinking, that he does on autopilot, the fact that he may have gone through the motions of doing it, then the mazik is still liable. So, Rav Shafran, Rav Shmuel following him, argue, opening an email in, today, in today's culture, the, the argument Rav Shmuel was making was that until the, until the recipient clicks on the email, opens the email, downloads the email, whatever he's doing, until he takes some action, email is not generally an automated system, and if it is, it just downloads it, it doesn't open it and trigger the, the attachment, the payload. Email will typically require some action on the part of the defendant. So Rabbi Shmuel had been suggesting, maybe since it requires some action, it's like the case of the animal that has to choose to eat the poison, and therefore the mazik is not liable. But says Rav Shafran, no, anything that the victim does as a matter of course, as a matter of routine, without, uh, with, without thinking twice about it, he just... Uh, goes through a standard routine without making conscious decisions, then the mazik is liable. Therefore, Rabbi Shmuel argues that the same thing should apply to, they argue the same thing should apply to emails, that the, we don't consciously think about each email, should I open it or not? But sometimes you do, sometimes you get an email from someone you recognize, you don't want to deal with, you decide, do I want to open this or not? But in general, routinely clicking through a list of emails is something that Rabbi Shafran argues is uh, it, it's not something that you really do consciously, and therefore, therefore, there's no deliberate intent, and therefore, the mazik would be liable. Similarly, Rav Asher Weiss. Rav Asher Weiss is not discussing cyber attacks. He is discussing 
Coronavirus. He's discussing viruses in general. Coronavirus. If you, uh, this is a question that, that's discussed by a whole bunch of contemporary authorities. If you uh, infect somebody else with a disease that you're carrying, and you do so either deliberately or, uh, or recklessly to the point of uh, negligently, you, you attend a, a crowded gathering when you know that, you, that you're sick and you thereby infect somebody else. So will you be liable for cost, for damage as a mazik? Sort of Usher discusses the, this idea of hayalash lotochal, that, the, that, in, that, that in the case where he has to breathe in, let's say he has to breathe in your air and so on, is there actually an argument to be made that the victim brings the, that, that the, victim brings the damage upon himself? Rav Asher Weiss says no. He, even if we consider that the victim did it to himself, Rav Asher also strongly, this is classic Rav Asher Weiss, See, he takes a very intuitive approach to halacha. If something doesn't pass the smell test, he... Uh, he uh, reframes it and reconstructs it in a way that does. So he argues that it doesn't really make sense, doesn't make so much sense, he says, for the, for that, to say that if I put poison in front of your animal that I should be putter. Where's the logic in that, he says? I'm, I'm a terrible person. I did a terrible thing. Why should I be putter? So he says it doesn't make any sense. He says the case of the poison is, it, despite what the clear sense of the Gemara seems to indicate, he wants to limit the case of the Gemara. It's only where... It's only in a case where it's really not so normal for the animal to eat it. The, the animal's not in its own field. It shouldn't be going around eating stuff when it's visiting someone else's house. Or it's poison. Animals don't really eat poison, even though the Gemara clearly extends this to a case where it is normal for the animal to do it. But he says it doesn't make sense to say that an animal on its home turf, where it's supposed to be eating, that's its job, is to go around eating uh, grass and getting fat for the slaughter and so on. It doesn't make sense to say that the, if someone slips poison into the animal's own food and the animal ate it, behaving like a perfectly normal model animal, it doesn't make sense to say that, uh, that, that, that that's the animal's own fault in any sense, that it brought the, the Nesek on itself. And therefore, his case, he's discussing a case of earlier Akronim, 19th century Akronim, involving a shared pasture, where somebody brought a sick animal into a, into a shared pasture and infected other animals. So even though there, were early, there, were, there was an opinion among the earlier Akronim, among Rav Shlomo Kluger and Rav Shlomo Drimmer, the Be Shlomo, who argued that that we can say that the that we can say that the had something to do with digestion in this case that the that that, that one of them ate grass that had been this, this wasn't a question of respiratory transmission apparently this was a question of one of them ate grass that had already been eaten by the other animal which left some kind of uh, pathogens on it. So you want to argue that it shouldn't have eaten it. Rav Asher Weiss says, it's normal. Animal eats where it's supposed to eat. It's put in the pasture. Of course it's going to eat. That's not what the Gemara meant. The Gemara meant an animal that's not eating its regular things, it's eating poison, it's eating uh, in an unusual context. That's all the Gemara meant. But if someone eats what it's supposed to eat in its normal, regular context, then there is no, then there is no, uh, no reason to say that and of course the mazik, that would not be a reason to exempt the mazik from liability. The cases of the email, there's an additional concern which we can talk about, which is, again, they tell you don't open emails from strangers, don't open attachments from strangers. Can the argument be made, this is like poison, that opening an email, again, if it's from someone you trust, you know, then maybe it's less, uh, you're more likely to open it, to open an attachment. Uh, are there warning signs? Is there any reason to believe that the victim shouldn't have opened it? Depends on the context. Sometimes yes, sometimes not. So that's another thing we can debate, whether the victim is in any way, uh, he should have exercised due diligence. But in any event, this is Rabbi Shmuel's concern. He goes back and forth on this. But intuitively, it would seem that this is not a reason to say that he's potter. 
the actual logic of the Gemara is not so clear. The simple reading of the Gemara, as understood by many poskim, seems to be that insofar as, as we require some type of autonomous action by the victim to bring the harm upon itself, then the mazik would not be liable. But there are some achronim, Rav Shafran, Rav Weiss, others, who have suggested limiting the Gemara in various ways and arguing that the arguing that it's clear that a mazik in such case is clearly and clearly responsible, and therefore we do hold him liable, we don't exempt him because the victim had to take some step to bring the harm upon himself. The one final consideration, just to discuss briefly, is the notion of Hezek She'en Onikar. There is a halachic rule that if you cause damage which is not discernible, even if it's knowable, but it's not discernible by looking at the object, by smelling the object, by tasting the object, so, for example, you make somebody's truma or kudshim, sanctified produce or you know, sac- sacrificial animals, you make it tame, ritually imp- impure, it can't be eaten anymore, that's called hezek shein or nicker, because it's not visible. You look at the animal, it looks just, as, it looks just the same as a non-tame animal, but it has the halachic status of tuma. That's called hezek shein or nicker, and you, we, it's machlokis in the Gemara, we paskin that you are not liable b'dine adam, you're chayah b'dine shemayim, you have a moral obligation to make good on what you've done, but, you're, but you, are, you are not chayav dine adam. Is that an issue here? When you, when you erase, del- delete, scramble, encrypt someone's data, would that be called hezek nikar or hezek she'en nikar? So on the one hand, a hard drive, a laptop, with data intact, without data intact, looks just the same. Certainly when it's turned off, it looks exactly the same. You can't, taste the, you can't taste the difference in the data, you can't smell it, you can't... Uh... On the other hand, when you turn the laptop on and try to look at the data, then you'll either, you'll either see your beautiful, uh, comforting spreadsheets and Word documents, or you'll see uh, error messages saying, file cannot be accessed, file cannot be decrypted, please, please supply encryption key, or whatever. So the question would be, is that enough to, uh, is that enough to make it Hezekniker or not? Quite likely, I think, that would be enough to be called Hezeknikar. Post can say, in general, if there's some way to discern the difference, even if it's not readily, visibly apparent, if there's some way to discern the, the problem, that's called Hezeknikar. So, for example, Post can discuss if you take a, uh, if someone lends you a milchik pot and you uh, negligently, recklessly cook fleishiks in it, and now the pot is treif. So, do you have, and it can't be cashered. Let's say it was earthenware, you can't cashier it. Do you have to pay for the damage, or do we call that hezek she'en or nikar? Suppose can say, certainly if you can taste whatever you cooked in there, if it's a milk pot and you can, uh, there are enough bleos, you can actually taste the blea that went in, that's called hezek nikar. The question is, if you can't taste it, if it's, if it's not tasteable at all, you just know the history that it was usher, that already is more of a debate, whether that's called hezek nikar, hezek she'en or nikar, but in our case, where turning on the laptop and trying to read the files would quickly uh, show you a screen full of very ominous warnings and errors, so arguably that would be called hezek nikar, discernible hezek. Furthermore, the halacha is that even though hezek she'en nikar is losh hezek, the chachamim already didn't want you to do this because obviously it's a terribly terrible thing to do, and it can cause pot- terrible problems in society if we give a dispensation for this kind of devious uh, hezek, hezek she'er nikar. So the Chavim made a knas, a rabbinic penalty, anyone who deliberately bemazed, or maybe even bepshia, negligence, certainly anyone who deliberately commits an act and causes hezek she'er nikar is going to be chayev as a knas. 
certainly the certainly the cyber criminals who are destroying and scrambling data are doing so deliberately. So certainly we would apply the rule that if it is uh, that certainly we would apply the rule that that it's had, that even if it's had the share nicker, we would still have the knas because they did it. Amazing, they did it deliberately. In general, Rabbi Shmuel and others, in the context of the, of the virus transmission, in general, Poskim debates whether this would, for the reasons we've discussed, maybe other reasons they discussed, whether this would be Hezek Nikar, whether this would be considered direct Hezek, Mazik Biadayim, or indirect Hezek, Grama, some kind. Of, we know the rule is in Halcha Shabbos, in Nazikin, in many contexts in Halacha, Grama, indirect Hezek, is not considered the same as doing it yourself. So in, in, in the laws of torts also, in the laws of Nezek, we often don't consider grama as if you did it yourself. Nevertheless, many posts can argue there is a subcategory called Dina de Garmi. There is a subcategory of grama that Chazal felt were particularly worthy of being chayev, either mikradin or again as a knas. And you would be chayev, and many posts can try to argue that these types of behaviors, certainly deliberate ones, would fall into the category of Dina de Garmi, that even if they're only considered grama, indirect hezek, they're a particularly egregious form of indirect hezek, and you, and you would be chaya for them. There's some debate about that. Rabbi Shmuel goes back and forth on this, so there actually is room for debate, but nevertheless, many poskim would say there is a strong argument, albeit not, uh, not a certain one, that would argue that uh, even if it's only a form of, of grama, of indirect hezek, you would still be chayev under the rubric of dina degarmi, that for certain types of, uh, certain types of grama, which are either more direct or more heinous or more uh, antisocial, in certain cases, the halach is that you're chayev, either medaraisa or medrabanan, and some postcom at least would argue that uh, cybercrime would fall into that category as well. There's probably a lot more we can say on this topic, but uh, we'll stop here. This was... Uh, this is, I think, enough for one day. So thank you all so much for coming, and I can take uh, questions if people have them. Hi, it's Shlomo. Yes. Two, two, two things, well, it's one question, I guess, with two different parts. It, it seems that there are some uh, uh, precedents in the, in the Gemara that didn't discuss that would seem to be uh, relevant. First of all, before, before discussing if it's possible to value damages, don't you have to put anything into one of the Avos Nazikin. Uh, figure out what kind of damage, it, what kind of tort it is, uh, and seem at first glance that this would fall under H because you're sending something into someone else's property, and the data maybe is Tamun, uh, and, and therefore you should be partner. On, on the other hand, if you encrypt someone's data, why is that not, not like if I go to your grocery store and put a padlock on the front door so you can't get into your grocery store? Okay. So Shlomo is asking, raising a couple of questions. One of them is that if something is mazik, there are different categories of hezik, and some of them have particular limitations. Um, so dealing with that part of the question first. So some of the authorities I quoted do actually raise that. I didn't get into it in my, in my talk, but some of them actually do raise that, specifically the question of whether this this would be the mazik of, of, of Aish or Bar. So just to clarify a little bit, there are, there are a number of Avas Nazikin, four Avas Nazikin, a bunch more, 24 Avas Nazikin. There are all kinds of different lists of Avas Nazikin. But for our purposes, we need to consider three or four possibilities. 
There is Adam Hamazik, be a dayim, someone who causes direct injury. You take a rock, you throw it through someone's window. You take his cow and you, uh, you, 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 you bludgeon it to death. So that's Adam Hamazik. And then there is Maman Hamazik, where a person doesn't commit the, the tort himself, but it's his property that causes the damage. And that we have, we have four common types. Uh, the, the, the four common categories are, are Shane Varegel, Karen, Bar, and Aish. Shane Varegel is an animal that eat that causes damage through the course of its normal behavior, like walking or eating. Karen is uh, unusual, uh, uh, malicious damage, like an animal goring with its horns. Bar is when you dig a pit and someone walks into it, falls into it, and gets injured. And, uh, or or uh, a donkey walks in and falls into it and gets injured. And uh, Aish is when you light a fire and the fire spreads and burns your neighbor's property. So when we discuss cybercrime, we have to consider whether it falls into, whether it's considered Adam Hamazik, direct Adam himself, or whether we look at the, the virus, the payload, as your mammon, and then your mammon went along and was Mazik, someone else's property. Rabbi Shmuel actually, and some others, actually do consider it as a question of mammon Hamazik, certainly the case of the 19th century acronym where you take your sick cow and put it in the pasture next to someone else's cow, and the cow goes around and... Uh, and eats some grass and transmits its, uh, its pathogens to another cow. That's classic Maman Hamazik. Rabbi Shmuel argues that the viruses are also a question of Maman Hamazik. You might argue it's Adam Hamazik, but we'll work with his approach that it is actually Maman Hamazik. In which case, he raises the question of whether it is Bar or Esh. Now, he actually argues that the, liabi- the opposite of what you suggested. He actually argues that the liability for Esh is actually going to be greater, because Bar, he says, Bar has its own exemption. The exemption of Bar is Bar is Potter for Kalem. Sharvalo Adam, Hamarvalo Kalem. So the damage, so cybercrime typically damages data or computers, which is typically Kalem. And therefore, if it's Bar, you certainly won't be Chayev. So he actually argues that it's H. Based on the Chazanesh, he actually tries to argue that it's H and, you're, and you'd be Chayev. You want to know, okay, but if it is H, and you felt it was H, so you want to know if it's H, why can't you argue that the data is Tamun? because the data is hidden inside the physical substrate of the, the drive, the, the metal, the plastic, the wires, and so on. Interesting question. I hadn't thought of it like that. I, I'd have to give that some more thought. The other question you raised was about why isn't it like padlocking someone's store? So, yes, so the, there is a famous ruling of the Yushalmi that all the posts can discuss. The, the Yushalmi rules, Hamavat al-Kiso shel is potter. That if you have a store, any kind of productive asset, an animal, I don't actually damage it. I simply render it inaccessible for a period of time. I lock your store so you, you, you lost all the sales for your store for that day. Or I tied up your cow when uh, your cow couldn't work for the day. The halacha is your potter. Despite the fact that there is a clear, well-defined, measurable economic harm, nevertheless, your potter. At least that's the way many post can understand the Yushalmi, that even if the harm is certain and foreseeable and definite and so on, Nevertheless, since I didn't cause you out-of-pocket damage, I, cost, I caused you opportunity cost, that's called Mavatal Kiso Shel Chavero, and you are potter, it's considered a form of grama. So, so Shlomo wants to know, if you render data inaccessible, should that be like Mavatal Kiso Shel Chavero? So certainly, if you actually delete the data, the data is simply gone, then arguably that is not Mavatal Kiso, that's Mazik. If you, 
if the data is still there, you just make it, if you take his hard drive and, and stick it in a safe and uh, twirl the dial and then burn the combination, right, arguably that would be the Batal Kiso, and they have to, you have to take a blowtorch and... and Sorry? I, I, I think I lost the connection, but anyway. And my phone rang just as I said that. If you encrypt it electronically, even if you don't physically lock up the hard drive. Right, so, so, so that's an interesting conceptual question. If you, encrypt the, if you encrypt the data, is that more like locking it in a room or is that more like destroying it? Um, it's a good question. I, 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 I would initially assume that it's more like destroying it because the because the data has been transformed. It's, it's, it's different data. It can, it can be reversed if you have the proper algorithm and key, but the data itself has been, uh, has been transformed. I would argue that it's more like destroying it, um, but yeah, I, I, I could see how somebody might argue differently. I have to give that a little more thought, but that's an interesting question also, so thank you.